Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Paul Podolsky, the author of Raising a Thief, a memoir. This is the story of how Paul adopted a 16-month-old daughter and found out he was in for a lot more than he bargained for. As soon as he got her home, she was just resisting on everything. As she got older, she would start to steal things and, and the lying started and he didn't know what to do. Over the course of raising his daughter and taking her to all kinds of experts and specialty schools, he learned some really interesting things about developmental psychology. He learned some strategies that work to deal with highly resistant kids like this. And he has some really great stories and insights to share with us today. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. The book is Raising a Thief, a memoir. And it's a story of you really struggling with your adopted daughter and her lying and stealing and kind of this really emotional roller coaster ride that you're taking on trying to kind of get to the bottom of what's going on with this and why is she doing this and how can I be the best parent I can be for her and I found a lot of I mean there's like actually psychology in here you go into kind of some of the theorists um, who have done work on attachment and issues like this and have some really interesting insights I think about parenting and about dealing with difficult kids like this and also really beautifully written. So can't wait to talk all about that and more. Can you just kind of orient us a little bit on on where you come from and what inspired you to write this book? Sure. My name is uh, Paul Podolsky and I always was actually interested in stories and writing a story but I didn't feel like when I graduated college, I had anything to write about. I don't know how thoughtful people write books in their 20s, but there's people who do, but I couldn't. Yeah. So I basically said, well, I need to go on an adventure and then I will have material to write this book. So the adventure I went on is when I graduated college, it was the same year that the Soviet Union was collapsing. Mm. And while uh, for younger people, the Soviet Union is like a matter of history. For me, it was something I grew up with. It was like North Korea was covering half the world. And I was really interested to go there and see what it was like. So I did go on an adventure. Um, but I also, in the process of living there for three years, met my wife and had a son and so uh, I got plenty of material to write about, but when I came back, I needed to support a family and I was worried that the book wouldn't provide any money. And so I went to graduate school and worked initially as a reporter, and then I worked in finance for 22 years to raise my family. We wanted to have uh, a bigger family, couldn't have a, a second child on our own, and also were really in favor of adoption just as a process. So we adopted a uh, wonderful 
charming 16-month-old girl from a place called Kaliningrad, Russia, and took her into our home. And then raising her turned out to be way, way harder than my wife or I had ever bargained for. And so um, as the kids got older, that desire to tell a story was still very strong in me. And I was like, well, the material's right in front of me. I just have to get the ideas and put them down. And you're right. It's a story about a child who was treated terribly before we adopted her. She was starved. She turns out to be very difficult to raise for reasons we can um, get into. And we went on a discovery process of how early trauma can really uh, jangle a kid's nerves and how you parent such a kid. And I didn't feel like the story was well told, or if it was told, it was sometimes in very academic type of books. And I wanted a story that both parents who were dealing with this and people like you, who I'm guessing do not have a reactive attachment disorder kid at home, could access and understand and know what it was like to be in our shoes. So that's why I wrote it. mentioning here that you were her fourth home so she'd been bouncing around for those 16 months and what what did you know when you got her about what her past was yep so she was born in what's called a communal apartment in russia so this is for basically the poorest people in russia you have a shared kitchen and everybody has their own rooms a shared bathroom too uh, that's where she was born and her birth mother, and we don't know why, did not feed her. So for anybody that spent time with an infant, you know that the most basic needs for an infant is basically to be held and fed. Yeah. And uh, our daughter did not uh, experience this. She almost died. She was screaming so loudly that the neighbors called the police on uh, the birth mom saying, you know, something terrible is going on. Having spent three years in Russia and my wife having grown up in Russia, the police in Russia, uh, certainly at that time, are not very hands-on, we're going to come in, be helpful. For them to remove a child from the home means it's desperate. Yeah. So they took the child from the mob and they put her in a hospital where she could recover her uh, weight and also she was struggling with pneumonia. And then she went from there to an orphanage and that's where we uh, met her. You're not told that much about a child when you adopt them. Okay. They get the, the adoptive people get a lot of information about adoptive parents, which makes sense because you're very concerned about the child being a safe home. So when we adopted the court system in Russia and the social service agency who gave us the okay in the United States, they knew everything. Right. They had a binder three inches thick. Uh, school records, tax records, employment records, Every possible piece of documentation about a person that can be put down on paper, they had. Um, what we uh, knew from our daughter from uh, speaking with a person who was sort of uh, our escort in the city of Kaliningrad was those facts I've shared with you and not much more. And so when we adopted our daughter, she seemed uh, wonderful. She was uh, chubby and uh, cheerful. And smiley. And the first night we uh, were all in the same room in Kaliningrad, she was playing peekaboo with us at night. So she seemed very, very convivial. Yeah. And we were elated. Uh, and then when we brought her back to the United States, we were living in Boston at the time, we had her checked out by a team of people at Boston Children's Hospital. 
And they also said, oh my goodness, you're so fortunate. You know, she's healthy. She's healthy. So we considered ourselves blessed. But soon after that, we began to notice peculiar things with her behavior and uh, that really were different than what our biological uh, son was like. And so that is really where the questions began. This began almost on day one, but because we never dealt with a severely traumatized child, and it turns out many of the professionals we looked for help for also had not dealt with it, yeah. they didn't recognize what was going on. And reason number one I wrote the book was to try to tell a story that would stick in people's minds, clinicians and parents, to help them recognize the signs early on. Because like anything else, half the battle is getting the appropriate diagnosis. And the earlier you can get the diagnosis, the better. If you're treating somebody uh, for a broken arm, when in fact they have a broken leg, you're going to run into problems. So some of these early signs that you talk about in the book, there's a lot of things happening, but um, one thing is the stealing kind of starts. So kids like this will try to control what they can, which makes sense actually, because early on when a child is in distress and the parent is holding the child and calming them, that gives the child trust in the world. And this just this is, you know, my theory, this is this is what leading psychiatrists and also now that they can do MRIs and brain scans of kids, they can see that if you don't yeah. hold a child, you begin to see a deterioration in these faculties early on. Little kids, of course, don't have much they can control, but they can control what they put in their mouth and often what comes out the other side. So yeah. very early on, she ran away from us and also would uh, either refuse certain things like refuse to drink or on the other side would eat so much that she would literally vomit because her body would reject the food. These were the early signs of her internal system, the wiring being off and her sort of operating in a reality of deep deprivation that didn't exist. Adding on to that, once she started going to pre-K, which we put her in because we were like, well, maybe socialization will help her. Yeah, so get, get, it, her get it. some other kids. Exactly. And other caretakers yeah. and stuff like that. She began to steal. And the stealing um, is an effort also to exert control and leverage over a situation because yeah. uh, it turns things upside down. And this kid becomes the person who's organizing everything as opposed to the kid who's participating in it. Um, the other thing about her is that when you'd ask her about the stealing, she would lie beautifully. Hmm. So much so that you begin to think that you're going crazy. Am I crazy? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and you also don't want to be, listen, you're talking about a four-year-old, a three-year-old. You don't want to be a hammer. You want to be yeah, gentle. Right. But then they're telling you. But then the school saw her, caught her red hand and doing it. And she would literally wait till the kids napped wait till the caretakers she thought were out of the room. And then she would get out of her cot and go start to steal stuff from kids. And um, it's, it's, it's amazing. She also, another thing that these, she did early on is, of course, very young children know about the concept that there's certain parts of their body that are private, that you know, they might yeah. take a bath. So, so she would expose herself both to neighbors and to pre-K. Again, this is a shocking thing that scares other kids 
They know it's not supposed to be done. That's and she would be caught in it. And then she would be caught literally red-handed with her pants down. And then she would stare at the caretaker, this person in her free and say, I didn't do it. So you begin to, one of the symptoms of this early on is you begin to get crazy lying. And on the one hand, in a little kid, it's not that threatening. But on the other hand, it really is a sign of very, very deep pathology. Yeah. And um, the, the key thing is getting this diagnosis of attachment disorder would have helped. We didn't get it until she was nine. This whole time when she began to do this, we began to yeah. reach out. We're just two parents trying to raise two kids. Right. And they didn't recognize it. Now, why they didn't recognize it is fascinating because kids who are going to be more likely to experience this are people who are experiencing massive disruption. Another thing that you point out that I found really interesting about how she would gain leverage and these kind of power struggles that started so early on, one of them was where you're trying to find a consequence that would click with her. And so you tell her you're going you're gonna to take away her prized stuffy from her bed and she just looks you straight in the eye and says flatly, I never liked it anyways. And so she's programming herself not to get attached to anything because anything that she gets attached to, that then you can take it away and that gives you leverage over her. And so even from this very early age, she's already starting to detach so that you'll never be able to have the upper hand over her. Um, Correct. Yeah. Correct. So your normal connection with a person, and again, this stuff can seem like you're on Mars if you haven't experienced it. Yeah. And I would have had trouble believing this stuff and I'd, unless I'd seen it firsthand. By the way, you can look. There's uh, groups on Facebook for reactive attachment disorder parents in the United States and the UK, there's thousands and thousands of families dealing with this type of thing. Um, uh, you're right that they shield themselves uh, from exactly this type of experience because they don't want to experience that pain. Normally, your connection with another human being is your leverage. So right. for our son, we experience very high levels of trust early on um, not because we were exceptional parents. We just did what most parents do with a young kid, which is you hold them, you feed them, you play with them. And I was, as a first-time dad, not thinking I was doing anything particularly exceptional. It literally changes the wiring of these kids. Because of our experience, I wrote a book about this. My wife changed careers and became a licensed uh, marriage and family therapist. And now she is sought out all over our area uh, by people that are dealing with this. Yeah. It's not only parents of adopted kids. So if you think about parents on military deployment, parents who are losing kids due to uh, kids who are losing parents due to COVID, this is a very widespread thing. And sort of the parents shorthand to the likelihood of a kid having this is A, the timing when it occurs, and B, the severity of the trauma they undergo. So I had thought that, um, hey, this happened to her before she was 16 months old. Everybody has difficult things in their lives. Yeah. Everybody yeah. has difficult stuff. Life isn't easy. But I had thought, well, because it happened so early, we bring her into a home, we love her, we do a bunch of family activities, presto, it's solved. And yeah. hey, by the way, my wife and to some degree me, like everybody else, we'd had some difficult things happen in our lives. As I mentioned in the book, my wife had been kidnapped as a child in yeah. Pakistan. 
And so I was like, listen, she bounced back from this. We can do, you know, but it turns out we were wrong and overconfident. What the research shows is that the early stuff actually disrupts the brain more. That first year is so important. Critical and even pre-K. I mean, even, even prenatal. So one big public policy thing I came out of this was, and I'm going to get back. I know it's a long-winded answer to your question is, boy, an ounce of prevention is worth pounds and pounds of cure. Because yeah. once a kid is like this, they have this strange wiring. And you, you said it, you know, right? you said, she said, I never liked the stuff anyway. So that literally she's staring at me. I'm like, you think about a small kid, I'm taking away your stuffy. Most kids would burst into tears. Yeah, and she looks right. at me absolutely flat cold and says i never liked it anyway don't care it's brilliant (laughs) so brilliant it's brilliant unless you want to have a manipulative yeah yeah and cutting and manipulative and she's so quick at the stuff which is so strange because if you measure a kid's iq you know her her iq has been measured she sort of has an absolutely average iq but in the areas of manipulation it's Mm. like evil genius and yeah, you right. just wonder, boy, could you direct it, direct it elsewhere? Yeah. And I say the title of the book is a little bit provocative. And a number, you know, some people said like, wow, raising a thief, how can you say that? And I said, well, you know, it's metaphorical for a bunch of things, but yeah. I want it to be a little bit shocking because yeah. you have to, you know, to be, I want it to engender, you know, a degree of empathy for the parents and the families and the kids that are all dealing with this. Because in addition to the challenges of raising this kid, you run into a lot of, well, every kid lies. Every kid steals. Yes, kids do lie and kids do steal. But what distinguishes these kids is that they don't lose the behaviors. They don't grow out of them. And they also don't know another way of engaging with you. Hmm. It's not like they switch to warm and loving and trusting. It's like there's always an angle. Yeah, or if they are acting that way, what are they trying to do? What's the, why yes. are you, yeah. Yes. Um, there's something going on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is also a very, you know, challenge. Think about your close relationships. Like it's very hard to have a relationship with somebody when you have to begin assuming that they're not telling you the truth all the time. Right. I love this line that you have on page 115. Parenting was predicated on feeling, that the kid and parent both felt something intensely strong for each other. Indifference, or in her case, antipathy, is ruinous to a family. Yes. Just so important, the bond. And um, when there isn't just the fundamental level of caring or connection, um, what do you do? You know, yes. That's uh, what everything is built on. Yes, a lot of people ask that, and um, like you, I found podcast incredibly powerful mm. technique to share information. So I, I created a podcast related to the book called "Things I Didn't Learn in School" because this is a big mm. thing I didn't learn in school. And on it, I've had a number of mental health professionals who have you know way more expertise in this than I do. I'm just you know, I'm just a dad. And one thing that will tell you is, is that you cannot offer a blanket prognosis for kids like this. Okay. Uh, it's too individual. You really need to look at the specifics. 
And it depends on so many factors. Uh, how resilient is the kid? Is there fetal alcohol syndrome? Do they have other interests that pull them out of this? What's the family structure? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But I think what you do is, is, is a couple of broad things. A, you try to prevent it in the first place. And I don't, I don't think this is like a, a left-right issue. I think that parents yeah. all over the political spectrum would be like, listen, investing in early childhood doesn't cost a lot compared to other no. things. Yeah. And the return on invest, we invest a lot more in old people than we do in young people. Yeah. A lot right. more. If you know, Look at Medicare's budget compared to early yeah. childhood. So that's prevention is the first thing. Second thing is diagnosis. You want to get this word out to clinicians. You know, I would love for this type of people to, to read this book so that when they see it, particularly in certain communities, in our, you know, in, in, in our area, there's, um, hasn't been big wars and disruptions for hundreds of years. Maybe it's fallen from people's memory, even though there's yeah. rich literature about this. So diagnosing it. Then things that I think that you could do uh, very different depending on the kid. There's a lot of, so I'd say early childhood is number one. Um, awareness of clinicians is number two. And then as the kids get older, um, I think you really need a total surrounding environment to try to yeah. strengthen these kids. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that the, I, I talk in the book, I did a lot of adventures with Nicole, hiking and skiing and surfing. That was great. But what would have made a big difference is if I'd had the cooperation and attention of her swim team, of her counselor at school, of her school teacher, of the parents of other families, because a lot of those people, frankly, doubted this. Right. And when we asked, hey, she support, seems great. She's really independent. She's uh, yes, really. And it's, talks it's all very superficial maturely. charm, and they wouldn't right. help out. And so we were, as you know, reading the book. We took the step at nine of institutionalizing her. But I yeah. think that that possibly could have been avoided if the community were much more attentive to actually saying, wait a minute, Paul Marina have got a real bundle they're dealing with. They need help. Talk to me about that decision to institutionalize and specifically you talk about the conversation where you have to break the news to Sonia. What was that like? Oh, it was so heartbreaking. And finally, when I dropped her off at the school, as I write about in the book, I just wept and wept and wept uh, like I hadn't wept really since I was a small child. We, I had no idea that residential treatment even exists. But basically the concept is, listen, if you get very sick with a terrible infection, you're going to be hospitalized. People yeah. know that if they don't get better seeing their primary care physician, there are higher threshold facilities for physical ailments, for cancer, for whatever. The same thing exists in mental health. And uh, what happened with us is that she began acting worse and worse and worse. And we felt like she was spinning out of control. And um, uh, a counselor we were seeing said, consider residential treatment. Residential treatment is uh, basically a combination school slash mental health facility. And what they can do there is exert way more leverage on a child than you ever could as a parent. Right. It's a complete uh, environment. And following really my wife's lead, she said, I think that she needs this. We, went, we found a spot in New Mexico 
we took her out there uh, for preteen girls. And once we were there, that was the first time that we were like, we're not crazy. First of all, the people out there are, you know, very well-educated, credentialed. They yep. have consulting literally with the lead trauma person, I think in the United States with Dr. Bruce Perry, he would call in and help them on cases, et cetera. And they also were like, oh, she's a classic case. It was like, yeah. oh, she is? It was like the first time I didn't feel that I was totally goofing off. But the process of taking her out of our home was so hard because I remember in the book when uh, the adoption papers were signed and the woman handed her to me at 16 months in Russia at night. And she said in, in Russian to me, she goes, which is protect and hold her. And I took that as my mission. I never distinguished between her and my biological son. I still don't to this day. And then when we dropped her off, it was like admitting defeat. It was like, we're yeah. up against something here bigger than I know what to do with. And then when she was there, they said not only did she have attachment disorder, they said that she has a pretty severe case. Something I found interesting was a quote that you put in here from John Bowlby, which says, stealing not only enriches oneself, but impoverishes and hurts others. Yes. And that was a revelation for you. Why is that? I was trying to... So Bowlby is the one I mentioned. He's the, the psychiatrist of the 1930s who first creates yeah. this. And he has this um, unbelievable study. This book here... 44 Juvenile Thieves, which is his, their characters in home life. So this is the original books that he writes where he is studying these kids. And at the time, everybody's in the thrall of Sigmund Freud. And they're like, well, if kids are stealing, they're doing it because of repressed sexual fantasy. And right. he goes, well, let's interview them. And then he interviews them and he goes through all their case studies. And I share some of them in the book, but he's like, no, this kid lost their mother. This kid lost their father. This person's caretaker got, you know, terrible things happening to people. And he realizes that the stealing is a characteristic of these children. They go to stealing right away. And he hypothesizes about what the stealing accomplishes. And it's really a way of striking back at the world. Um, and it's, it's so, it's very pathological because the stuff our daughter stole until she became an adult. And then she committed a more serious theft and was actually charged with a felony once she was already uh, over the age of um, 18. But the stuff yeah. she stole was very, very inconsequential generally, constantly stealing money and food and misplacing phones and stuff like that. But it is a way to hurt the world. And what Bowlby made sense of it is, is listen, somebody had done a great injustice to my daughter early on, true. It's not my daughter's fault. She was treated terribly and lots of kids get treated so awfully. Um, it's, ugh. And then there's a response back to the world. And the yeah. response back is, you know, a little bit of an F you to it's the rest bad. of the world. And that's a great way of executing it. And yeah. particularly again, what can the kid control to strike back? And it asks a lot of a parent. Because when you're getting robbed, you have to sort of have that higher level person in you. Well, this is what a traumatized kid does. But I, I think that the parent, you know, tries their best. But to, to stay calm relentlessly when you're targeted is very 
very, very uh, hard. But that's that's why I thought the Bowlby comment was so insightful. The other comment <laughs> that I put in there that I found insightful and I've shared on a few chat rooms is I read, to write this memoir, I read a lot of memoirs. And one of them I read is Gandhi's. And uh, Gandhi, <laughs> the father of nonviolence, <laughs> describes losing his cool with a kid in South Africa. And I wondered if reading the book, could this kid have been an attachment disorder kid? Because Gandhi would let any kid into his school mm-hmm. and was teaching them the kids were being, I guess, behaving terribly. And Gandhi freaks out and smacks one of the kids with a ruler. And I was like, listen, if the father of nonviolence lost his cool. Right. I'm not excusing the, the times that I've been person <laughs> exactly. on the planet. There. You know, yeah. there's there's these these kids can really turn you upside down. And, um, and, and I think Bowlby hit the nail on the head when he described what the social function of the robbing is. And that's also um, this, a form of manipulation if they can um, make you so angry and you lose your cool, then um, yes. they win and yes. they beat you. Um, and it's just like playing a game of chess kind of, but it's emotional. It's emotional manipulation. And yeah, when you don't, have that much control um any of those ways that you can gain the upper hand are really appealing oh my goodness they are and i thought i was so impressed by people at the school about how zen they were with dealing with the kids and some of the tricks they used and and i see with my wife now it's a lot easier to do when it's not your kid yeah when you can detach that a little bit extra it's yeah my wife is, you know, she gets these, she gets these rad families because it's confidential. I don't know anything about the specifics, but she comes back. I'm like, how was work? Work was fine. She's, you know, but mm-hmm. dealing with our own daughter, uh, you know, we had a, conf- I had a, uh, uh, I spoke with her yesterday. It's tough. We're here today with Paul Podolsky talking about his experiences raising a daughter who was lying cheating and stealing and we're not done yet here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show these kids are very good as you're saying about splitting parents you and your partner need to be a rock a unified front you need to have experiences that make your kids crave to be around you So my wife had gone away on a trip. I was taking care of her alone. Uh, our son was away uh, at a boarding school. So it's just me and Sonia at home. And I said, listen, she's a teenager. She's not going to wake up at 530 in the morning on a school day. She never um, does. She right, never yeah. does. So I'm just going to go and do the swim and come back home. And to in, in the goal of playing chess, I'd already had a contract with her that if you happen to get up, but I'll come and wake you up, then we'll go downstairs. And this is where these kids are so smart because she gets up, cooks breakfast and has sort of breakfast cooking as I come home, which initially could be like, oh, the kid's trying to be helpful. Oh, wow, great. Yeah, nice. Oh, thanks, honey. Yeah. But they're actually crossing a line. But that's not what we... But that's not yeah, that's not the deal, deal we had. So you have to yeah. have very firm boundaries with these kids. Yeah, totally, right. And other, you know, it's tricky because other parents, maybe other family members will be like, why are you so... What? You're being an asshole. Exactly. Come on. Exactly. <laughs> like, would you lighten up? No, these kids, you need firm, clear structure. Different kids yeah. need different parenting. And I had a sense 
uh, that something was off. And this is something else they taught us um, at that school, which is your intuition as a parent mm-hmm. about something being on or off pace. I think it's very, very deep in us on an animal level. We have this trust thing. You know, and a lot of thriller movies will play off that. You know, when you hear the dramatic yeah. movie, they're just looking around, who's in the closet? You know, that type of fear. You get versions of that with your kids. Something doesn't feel right. And in this case, I felt something was off and I was scanning for it and I couldn't see it. Yeah, so right. then I was like, the computer, the computer. And she didn't know that the history, you know, that you could go into the web browser and see the history. So I logged into my wife's computer checked the history and saw that she had been in it doing pretty benign stuff, you know, checking about stuff about Justin Bieber. So it wasn't that it wasn't that she wanted, you know, if I come home and she had been up in a room and she said, dad, I don't know why. Can I really look at stuff about Justin Bieber now? Will you make breakfast? I would have been like, no problem. Sure. It was the lying about it. It was the deviousness of it, of getting on while I was gone, then the lying about it. And then the crossing the boundary with the breakfast and covering it up that I was like, this is terrible. Yeah. Terrible. And so I, you know, called her out on it. And it, the, 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 the tricky thing with um, these uh, kids is when you do finally, as if they get older, if they're deteriorating, when you do catch them with stuff, you'll say, hey, you lied to me. And you know, you've kind of connected there because you hit that part of them that's totally empty and their face just goes slack, or at least hers did. Hmm. And she just looks at you totally neutral and goes, yeah, I did. And it's, it's heartrending because you're looking yeah. sort of at this, there's an empty part of these people that was created through the trauma. Sometimes you face right into it when you're confronting them with those, at those moments. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.